I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how three 20-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. All right, welcome to Rivals, the show about music rivalries, feuds, beefs, simmering tensions between pop stars, flannel, grunge, at least in this episode. My name is Stephen Hyden. My name is Jordan Runtog. Thank you for listening to this episode. This episode means a lot to me because I'm a man in my early 40s. There was a time in my life where I listened to a lot of grunge music when I was a youth. And you were like a fetus, I think, at this time. I, yeah, I was trying to master solid foods, yes. Like in the early 90s. I would have been, yeah, three, four. We're going to be talking about Nirvana versus Pearl Jam. This was like the first rivalry in my life that I really, really cared about. And this doesn't register for you at all. No, I mean, by the time, you know, in mid to late 90s, when I was kind of becoming aware of of, of popular music, the battle was kind of over. Kurt had already died, and Nirvana were obviously iconic, but they were static. They were kind of locked in time and sort of exempt from any kind of rivalry. They just, they they were Nirvana, period. They had already kind of entered, like, Bob Marley, John Lennon, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin canon. And as one of these millennials that I keep reading about <laughs> in the media, like what, what, what is your feeling about Pearl Jam? Pearl Jam, I mean, less strong. I mean, they, they were a, a good band that kind of carried the torch on from Nirvana and the whole Seattle scene. Uh, a good band. A good band. <laughs> a good band. Well, a my, good. My, my first impressions uh, of Nirvana were, or my, sorry, my, my, Pearl my, Jam. My Gen X I know, I just thought you were going to stand up. I thought you were going to flip oh, the man. table. Uh, my first, so charitable of you, by the way, to call Pearl Jam. They're a good band. <laughs> 
What a good. My no, I thought you meant at the time. At the time, my first impressions of them were the uh, last Kiss song. I just thought it was that's. You know, that's oh it. man. Which I know, which is again oh. completely skews my entire take on oh. Pearl Jam. I mean, Vitology's an incredible album. You know, versus Ten. I mean, good luck. Just that came later. Do you see my cane shaking <laughs> at the? Uh, Mention of yeah. Last Kiss. My, if you my, had a lawn right now, I would get off. My dentures just fell <laughs> clean out of my mouth at that. Well, well, Sonny, take a seat on my lap because we're going to no, do teach a little... teach me. Teach we're me. We're going to do a little grunge history for you. Let's dive into this mess. Okay, Nirvana. We'll start with them. They formed in 1987. Put out their first record in 1989. It's called Bleach. It's on the Sub Pop label. Sub Pop, of course... The label most associated with the early kind of days of grunge and music in Seattle. And then the year after that, they hire a guy named Dave Grohl. Have you heard of Dave Grohl? I've heard of Dave Grohl. I've interviewed Dave Grohl. You have? Yes, I've I never have. interviewed Dave Grohl. I'd love to interview Dave Grohl sometime. I can teach you about that. <laughs> the band that he was in before the Foo Fighters was Nirvana. <laughs> he joins Nirvana in 1990, and they become the sort of Nirvana of myth at that point. And he joins in time... For the recording of Nevermind, which, of course, comes out in September of 1991, proceeds to take over the culture. Decent album. Decent. It's pretty solid. <laughs> kind of a, you know. I'm never going to live that down, am I? Kind of, kind of a well-known sorry. record. Yeah. That becomes sort of a mythic album. It seems like in the moment. Like, it's one of those records that people are talking about. There's a symbolic thing that happens at the end of 1991 where Michael Jackson's Dangerous is like the number one record in the country. And then it's supplanted by Nevermind. And again, that's like this symbolic passing of the torch moment from sort of imperialist pop music, dominant forces of mainstream culture being overthrown by this upstart underground band that is transforming the culture. And I don't want to sound like some Gen X documentary here because this is a cliche of documentaries, but genuinely a transformative record, a record that ushers in all these other bands, all this underground culture and really the 90s as we know them kind of begin at that moment. May I ask you a question? I, as somebody, I, I don't remember the first time I heard Nevermind. It's just one of those things that just always sort of existed I do. to me. I was going to ask you, what was that like for you? I remember hear. hearing Smells Like Teen Spirit. I was at home. I was at home for lunch from eighth grade. You went home for lunch? I went cool. home for lunch. I lived in a small town. You could, you could go home for lunch. I was also a nerd, so <laughs> I had no one to sit with at lunch. So I was in the target audience for a record like Nevermind. And I turn on the TV and there's this video. It's like a pep rally at a school, but it's like a pep rally from hell. And you have this blonde guy mumbling lyrics that you can't understand. And then he hits the chorus and he's screaming and like the drummer's going crazy. And I remember thinking like this was like a novelty song. Like it seemed like such a weird song to see on MTV because at that point, like the only rock bands you saw on MTV were like Guns N' Roses, Motley Crue, Poison, all these guys from Los Angeles who looked amazing and, you know, were getting chicks and, like, doing drugs and, like, that's what a rock star was. And, like, these guys clearly were not rock stars. They were losers. Like, they were outsiders. And it was like, man, I don't know if I like this song, but I can't take my eyes off of it. And then, you know, I don't know how many times it took me for me to play that video because it was one of those videos that just seemed to be everywhere instantly. And I was too young to know about Bleach, but Bleach had kind of primed the pump, I think, in the underground for Nevermind, and Nevermind just kind of blew them up. And I think people that were in the know knew about Nirvana. 
But I lived in a small town in the Midwest, not really any independent record stores, no real kind of college radio to speak of. So I was like a sheltered kid. And this was like kicking the door down to a world that I had no idea existed. And it's really hard to talk about this stuff, again, without sounding like the most generic Gen X documentary ever, because all these things are now cliches. You know, we've heard this spiel that I'm giving right now a million times, and there's probably people listening to this going, yeah, 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 like, okay, I've heard this from you and other graying beard dudes many, many times. All I can say is that I'm telling the truth. Like, that's what it felt like. It was amazing. I was the perfect age for that to happen. And I'm really glad I was I was 14. I had just turned 14 when that record comes out. So anyway, that's Nirvana. Big, big band. Let's go to the Pearl Jam side. Pearl Jam, they have their roots in a band called Mother Love Bone. Okay, Mother Love Bone is this sort of glammy rock band that was in Seattle that was like sort of a thinking man's hair metal band, essentially. Like sort of like an alternative rock hair metal band in the same way that like Jane's Addiction was at that time. And the core of that band, the musical core, is a guitarist named Stone Gossard and a bass player called Jeff Ament, or maybe it's Ament. I've never been able to pronounce his name correctly, but it's something like that. The lead singer of Mother Love Bone passes away, Andrew Wood, of a drug overdose. So Stone and Jeff are, like, screwed. They think their chances to have a big music career are over, but they continue to write songs together. They hook up with this guy that they know locally named Mike McCready, who wears many blouses and, and do-rags, kind of looks like Stevie Ray Vaughan at that time, kind of a bluesy-type guitar player, or maybe like Richie Sambora, a little Sambora-esque. Sambora-esque. And, you know, they start making music together, and they're looking for a lead singer, and they hear about this guy who lives in San Diego. He's a surfer. I think he was working at a gas station at the time. Name is Edward Vetter. He gets a demo tape of this. I think Jack Irons, the drummer from Red Hot Chili Peppers and later joined Pearl Jam later on. I think he was the one that kind of hooked up the Pearl Jam guys with Eddie Vedder. But he records vocals on this demo tape, and it turns out to be these iconic songs on that tape. Songs like Alive, other songs that are classics, that ended up on an album called Ten, which came out in August of 1991, a couple of weeks before Nevermind. And unlike Nevermind, 10 doesn't immediately take over the culture. It kind of takes a while for that to, to take hold. But by the end of 1992, Pearl Jam is starting to kind of overshadow Nirvana at that point. And I know at my school, around this time, because, you know, Pearl Jam, they had 10, which ended up just being a ginormous record. Do you know 10? I do know 10. You know 10. And Temple of the Dog, which... Also comes out at this time, the super group with Chris Cornell, R.I.P., and some other guys from Soundgarden, Matt Cameron, who later joined Pearl Jam, as well as the Pearl Jam guys as a super group record. So that's a big record. Pearl Jam 10 is a big record. The singles soundtrack, the movie Singles, the Cameron Crowe movie, that comes out in 92. That's a big hit. So Pearl Jam's everywhere. And Kurt Cobain, of course, notices this. And like Pearl Jam, unlike Nirvana, they didn't have roots in the 80s underground scene. They were a new band. They were kind of an upstart band. People are starting to ask Kurt Cobain about Pearl Jam. And he starts giving interviews, and he was not very charitable to Pearl Jam. For instance, there's an interview in Chicago Tribune from 1992 where he says, I find it offensive to be lumped in with bands like Pearl Jam. Then he gives another interview where he calls Pearl Jam, quote, a corporate alternative and cock rock fusion. 
I'll say that again. A corporate, alternative, and cock-rock fusion. Which sounds like a lost Nirvana album title, kind of. Could be. Could definitely be. And then there's another interview in Rolling Stone where Kurt Cobain accuses Pearl Jam of jumping on the alternative bandwagon. This is all happening in 1992. It's in the wake of Nevermind. Nevermind is still selling a lot of records. Nirvana is still a really big band. But the sort of momentum from all these things happening with Pearl Jam are really kind of getting big. And there's even like a quote from Kurt Cobain's own journals. Like Cobain, even when he's not talking to a reporter, he's still thinking about Pearl Jam, thinking about how much I hate Pearl Jam. And he writes in his journals that he wishes that Nirvana could be erased from their association with Pearl Jam. And that's pretty damning. I mean, there have been theories, especially one from Kurt Cobain's biographer, Charles Cross, who wrote Heavier Than Heaven, where that he started, that Kurt started talking about the Pearl Jam rivalry and just started trashing them in interviews to basically throw journalists off the scent of asking him about his own personal problems. The journalists were starting to ask him about, you know, drug addiction at that point and, and things like that. And basically to throw red meat at a, rabbit, at a wild dog that's chasing him. Which I got to say, if that was the strategy didn't work. Yeah. Because yes. people were still doing that. There was the famous Lynn Hirschberg profile in Vanity mm-hmm. Fair that was more targeted to Courtney, more Courtney Love, yeah. but it was definitely some residual damage was done to Kurt Cobain in that. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts. 
bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. This is all building up to the 1992 Video Music Awards, which... Your um, favorite VMAs, I, I, I have I to say, yeah, yeah I, I think when you think about great events in American history, obviously... The moon landing. Yeah, the moon landing. You have the That's signing of good. Declaration of Independence. That's okay, too. And then you have the 1992 MTV Video Music Awards. Just an incredible assemblage of 90s rock stars. You know, you've got Guns N' Roses... Was that when the fight happened with with Guns N' Roses, or was that? Yes, that's a different story. Oh, sorry, sorry. At some point, we're going to talk about Guns N' Roses and Nirvana because it's a very busy VMAs for Nirvana. Exactly, because you had because you had Axel and Kurt almost coming to blows backstage. It was it Chris and his bass coming to blows? I believe too. Is that the one? Exactly. Yeah. Chris Novoselic got hit in the face with while, his own while they played um, in Bloom. But no, while they played Lithium yeah. on stage. You had, you had Axel. You had, you had Guns N' Roses and Elton John playing November Rain. A performance that lasted approximately 14 hours. I think it's still happening. Exactly, but keep it going forever. <laughs> I mean, not long. You could never make that song long enough, as far as I'm concerned. Just a beautiful piece of music. Um, <laughs> you have En Vogue there. You have Brian Adams. You have U2 coming in via satellite, and like Dana Carvey as Garth Algar playing drums on even better than the real thing. I don't know if you remember that. I don't remember that. Wow. I'm telling you. Just the greatest hits album of like awesome award show performances on this show. But maybe the most important event, other than the Axel Kurt fight. Which wasn't broadcast, I believe. What's that? This, this, what you're about to say was not broadcast. Well, this broadcast. wasn't broadcast either. No, there was a moment that happened backstage while Eric Clapton is on stage playing Tears in Heaven. The lovely tribute uh, that he wrote for his, for his late son. And Kurt Cobain and Eddie Vedder and I believe Courtney Love are backstage and I think it's Courtney Love like pushes Kurt and Eddie together and they start dancing like slow dancing with each other which I I feel like they're probably taking the piss out of Eric Clapton by dancing here I don't think they genuinely felt moved by this song which is a it's a lovely song I'm not gonna diss Tears in Heaven I feel like a lot of people diss Tears in Heaven you're gonna be silent that's okay you don't need to I'll, I'll go on this limb by myself a lovely, no, I will. I think it's a great song. It's- a lovely soft rock favorite. They're dancing to it, and this is a moment that actually ends up being immortalized. I, I feel like someone was maybe shooting it on video or something on a camcorder, and the general public doesn't actually see this moment until 20 years later in the Cameron Crowe documentary, uh, Pearl Jam 20, which came out in 2011. And this clip was kind of like the way that they sold this documentary. It was kind of like one of the most famous... Because it had never been seen. It was, never it, was, been seen. it was this holy grail moment that fans had talked about, and or at least Pearl Jam fans had talked about. Exactly. And, you know, when this movie came out, it was presented as, you know, this this moment, this scene was presented as Look, sort of— they were okay. Yeah, this is, like, we're, this is like Gorbachev and Reagan, you know, shaking hands in the 80s at the summit. You know, like, we're signing a nuclear disarmament deal, but for rock stars, you know? Like, we have come together. And there's this part in the movie where Eddie Vedder's talking about this— and he's talking about how he's imagining, like, if Kurt Cobain were still alive. And he's like, I think he would have said, you, you did okay, man. 
Yeah, it's this beautiful, beautiful like, like fantasy around a campfire. I think beautiful moment, and it's well. Eddie Vedder did another interview right after Kurt Cobain died with Spin, where he talked about. Wait, no, wait. The, no, the campfire, campfire story is in the documentary. Is in the documentary because there's another story right after Kurt Cobain died that that Eddie Vedder talked to Craig Marks of Spin, where he said like. I would sit have, around and play some stupid songs yeah, together. I want to hang out. I wish we could have just hung out, man, and like, you know, jammed and like, you know, talked about how hard it is, you know, this this rock star life. And then, yeah, and in Pearl Jam 20, it just talks about like, man, like, whenever I have a campfire, it'd be nice if Kurt Cobain were here and we could just talk about everything. But if he did see me, he'd say, you're okay. You're okay, kid. Which is interesting because... <laughs> Because as they're slow dancing, Kurt tells him something. Exactly. Kurt tells Eddie something. What does he tell him? Exactly. And, th- you know, again, like, man, th- that's such a great scene in Pearl Jam 20, by oh, the way. Yeah. And, like, I don't doubt Eddie Vedder's sincerity. I think he, like, because the thing about this this whole thing, you know, I think one thing that's been consistent so far is that there's nothing coming from Pearl Jam's side. Eddie Vedder never, never Eddie, Eddie Vedder never said, Kurt Cobain is a punk ass, you know, <laughs> poser, man. Like, tell him to get off my shit. Like, he never said that. It was always Kurt Cobain dissing Pearl Jam. And Pearl Jam never said anything about Nirvana, ever. And after Kurt Cobain died, whenever Eddie Vedder would talk about Kurt Cobain or Nirvana, it was always very respectful. Reverent, like a big reverent. Brother. And he loved, and I think he genuinely loved Nirvana. I think he respected them. I think he recognized that, like, if not for Nirvana's success, it, I don't know if we would have had the career that we did in Pearl Jam. Like, and that's true. They say that, that's true. Always giving it up, giving dap, dapping up Kurt Cobain whenever he can, but also kind of creating this narrative that, that the they were rival- okay. Yeah, that, that the rivalry between Pearl Jam and Nirvana wasn't genuine. That it was press created. That's what they all said and laid all this revisionism about press created. Press created. But if it were real, they made up at the MTV Video Music Awards and it was all good. However, this idea, this narrative that's very cozy and warm, and I wish were true, it falls apart when you actually read Kurt Cobain's own words. Like, that's the problem with this yeah. theory. For As us, their it, arms were around each other, dancing the tears in heaven. Yes, exactly. Kurt so the, looked into Eddie's eyes and yeah, said... Yeah. Well, yeah, because Kurt Cobain, he does an interview with Michael Azarad. And I don't know if this was in Come As You Are, which is the, the book that Azarad wrote about Nirvana in 93, or if this came out later. But he talked about this slow dance with Eddie Vedder, and this is what he said, quote, I stared into his eyes, and I told him that I thought he was a respectable human. Right, so far, so good. A bare minimum compliment, but yeah, okay. but you know, it's, yeah, it's a compliment. You're a respectable person with human blood cells and hair and... and, and carbon-based and all, life form. You're a carbon-based life form. And I did tell him straight out that I still think his band sucks. Left turn, left turn Left turn while you're, while you're slow dancing. No. Kind of a weird, you know... I, I don't know if they were still dancing at this point or if they like kind of stopped. I prefer to think they were. And I said, after watching you perform, I realized that you are a person that does have some passion. It's not a fully contrived thing. There are plenty of other more evil people out in the world than him, and he doesn't deserve to be scapegoated like that. End quote. So, you know, let's review. He's saying basically, uh, your band sucks. But, you know... It's, it's cute t- that you care. Yeah, it's cute that you care, and it's not totally bullshit. You know, it's like 65% bullshit. You know, it's like 65% contrived. And look, there are way worse people than you in the world. <laughs> like, you, you know, you could do way worse than you. So, you know, I'm going to lay off of you. I'm going to leave you alone. Yeah, your band sucks, but, you know, it's okay. You're, you're an okay dude. 
But then he didn't leave. He didn't lay off a Pearl Jam after that. Well, he he he, he always would try to be diplomatic after that. He but would it always, always try. Fell apart. I know it's like, and you know, I don't know how hard he actually was trying, but he kind of puts up the appearance that he's trying to be nice to Pearl Jam. But you know, he Kurt Cobain does another interview with Rolling Stone, talking to David Frick for a cover story that runs three months before Kurt Cobain died. So this would have been like early ninety-four. Or so yeah, and he says, "quote." One of the things I've learned is that slagging off people just doesn't do me any good. I hadn't met Eddie at the time. It was my fault. I should have been slagging off the record company instead of them. They were marketed, not probably against their will, but without them realizing that they were being pushed into the grunge bandwagon. So again, like, I don't blame Eddie Vedder for Pearl Jam being terrible. I blame the record company for Pearl Jam being terrible. And, uh... You know, they probably didn't realize that they were being marketed as a sellout band. I mean, they were, obviously, but it's not their fault. That's a translation there, the slightly less charitable translation. And then Frick asks him in a follow-up question, like, if he feels any empathy for Pearl Jam. And Cobain says, quote, yeah, I do. Now, he could have stopped there. Could have just said, yeah, I do, right? That sounds yeah. pretty good. Hey, totally. hey, Kurt. Do totally you, neutral. Yeah. Kurt, do you feel empathy for Pearl Jam? Yeah. Next question. But no, he, he, he can't resist getting one last jab in. He says, except I'm pretty sure that they didn't go out of their way to challenge their audience as much as we did with this record. They're a safe rock band. They're a pleasant rock band that everyone likes. God, I've had much better quotes in my head about this. I love <laughs> that moment. Yourself. I love that thing in the moment where he's like, oh, I can see what this is going to look like in print. Mm-hmm. It's like, I've already, I'm screwed already. One of the better sh- backwards, uh, backhanded compliments in... <laughs> It's like, why did I just stop it? Yeah, I do. Why did I have to add this? This is just going to create more headaches for me. So the record at the time, by the way, in utero. The- yeah, exactly. So yeah, in 93, uh, in September of 93, Nirvana put out in utero, which turned out to be their final studio record. I think one of the great albums of the 90s, one of the greatest albums of all time. I, I think that's just such a classic masterpiece record. That record comes out. It sells about 180,000 copies in its first week, which is really impressive when you consider the fact that Kurt Cobain insisted on putting fetuses all over the back cover of that record. So Walmart and and uh, and Kmart, I believe, like refused to sell the record. So two of the biggest retailers in America in 1993 weren't selling in utero. And you feel like if they had been selling it, maybe that album sells two or three times more records i mean like there's a lot of places in the country where you can't even buy it at that point about a month later pearl jam puts out verses that album sells about nine hundred and fifty thousand copies in about five days so which is a record a record that stood for five years like garth brooks broke it so i think that's about five times more than what in utero sold so by 93 it is clear they're getting pummeled they're getting pummeled and Without question, I think at that point, Pearl Jam is the biggest rock band in the world and one of the biggest rock bands ever for about two or three years because Vitology, which came after Versus, I think sold about the same number of copies in its first week, you know, about 900,000 copies. And these are numbers, by the way, that um, it's kind of impossible to even conceive of a rock band being that successful. Oh, easy. In yeah. a modern context. Absolutely not. I mean, I think in terms of like rock bands, 
I mean, maybe you could talk about Led Zeppelin in the 70s. Certainly the Beatles sold prodigious months of records. A little bit later on, Limp Biscuit actually was also just a sales juggernaut on like chocolate like chocolate starfish and the hot dog flavored water, I think sold like a million copies in one week, which I think is still a record for a rock band. So I'm glad that Limp Biscuit's place in the history books. Is I was secure. gonna say the great <laughs> the great rock bands, you know, Zeppelin, Pearl Jam, and Limp Biscuit. That's the lineage. <laughs> but just absurdly successful at that point. And you know it, it it's, it's interesting. Well, it's just funny how Kurt, who you know was, was always portrayed as sort of anti-fame, you know, turning his back on it, w- was very aware of this and right. very aware of the, the sales discrepancy, and was apparently very annoyed by it. You have in Danny Goldberg's book, uh, "Serving the Servant," came out earlier this year. He says he, you know, he got a call from Kurt saying like, "Why aren't our videos being?" Played on MTV is like, do we piss someone off there? What's what's going on? And uh, when Pearl Jam got the cover of Time Magazine, uh, Courtney Love later said that he was really annoyed by that, like really, really pissed him off too. So I mean, there was, despite all of the you know the views of him really not you know caring about playing the fame game, I mean, th- this definitely did get to him. I mean, whether or not it, it was just because he was so annoyed by by Pearl Jam, uh, you know, if it was somebody else, you know, maybe he wouldn't have. I mean. I kind of doubt it. I can't imagine a scenario like where he would have liked any band that was capable of selling that many records. I that's mean, true. I mean, you're right. To me, that's like one of the most fascinating contradictions about Kurt Cobain because he is looked at and with justification as being this sort of anti rock star in a lot of yeah. ways that he didn't want to be looked at in the same way that we look at other rock stars. At the same time, he was a student of rock stardom. He understood like what made people popular and he steered Nirvana very consciously in a direction that sort of enabled them to become as successful as they did. Yeah. I mean, if they wanted to just be an underground band, they they first of all, you don't hire Dave Grohl, like a drummer of that caliber. You keep hiring the kinds of drummers that they had before, which were, you know, very fine kind of garage rock band guys, but like we're not going to hit with the kind of precision and like arena rock power of a Dave Grohl. And then you don't like hire Butch Vig <laughs> to make a record as just beautiful sounding as Nevermind. Like just a perfect guitar, a perfect car stereo FM rock record. And clearly, you know, Cobain had some misgivings about Nevermind in the aftermath. I mean, In Utero, you know, was sort of a reaction against the sound of that record. And there was, of course, so much hype about in utero leading up to it, that this was like an unlistenable record, that it was like pouring acid into your eardrums, and that like Steve Albini had like made them sound like, you know, a bunch of like crazy bikers straight, you know, hitting chains against like a chainsaw or something, you know, which none of that really proved to be true. I mean, it's like a loud, abrasive kind of gregarious rock record, but like heart shaped box and yeah. even the song Rape Me catchy song very melodic you know you know as provocative as some of those lyrics are well i mean let me ask you all the accusations that kurt is making you know is hurling at pearl jam could you say that a lot of those same things could be said about kurt and nirvana about how you know willingly signing up i mean i feel like i mean i think that dave later said dave Grohl said you know yeah we signed the paperwork i mean we didn't do it with a gun to our head we well i mean I do wonder to what degree, like when he calls them like a safe mainstream band, how much of that is just reacting to the sales disparity between in utero and versus. Mm. And I think certainly... Like a defensive... Yeah, I mean, and, you know, and there's some truth in 
in what he's saying and that like Pearl Jam did kind of follow the prototypical like look of like an arena rock band. I mean, my feeling on Pearl Jam, and I mean this as a compliment because I love Pearl Jam, but I always felt like they had the mind of Fugazi and the body of Aerosmith, you know, where like if you could have had a swaggering arena rock band that actually had some integrity and like cared about like how they conducted their business. Like that's, that's basically Pearl Jam. And you have a guy like Eddie Vedder who is just cut from the cloth of like Roger Daltrey and like, you know, these sort of like huge voiced roars, arena rock singers is very good looking guy. Although Kurt Cobain is also a great looking guy. I mean, I always thought it was funny when people complain about this era of music where they say like, well, this is the era that rock stars died. Like there was no rock stars, like that like, like grunge kind of kicked out the the traditional rock star. And I always feel like, who's a better rock star than Kurt Cobain? Like who looks better than him? Who's like more iconic than him? Mm-hmm. Or like someone like Eddie Vedder? Like that's he's like he's like out of a comic book of like of rock stars. Not to mention people like Chris Cornell and Courtney Love and P.J. Harvey and Trent Reznor and Billy Corgan, all these larger than life figures that came out of alternative rock at that time. But I digress. I'm going to, that's, this, this is my old man, Gen X guy talking about 90s rock stars. But um, kind of getting back to, to Nirvana, you know, whether that was sort of Cobain being defensive about his own sort of mainstream rock status with that. You know, I wouldn't, there, there probably was a little projection with that, yeah. I think, on some level. I also think, though, that I also wonder to what degree. That criticism subsequently influenced Pearl Jam's next couple records because you get to Vitology in 1994 and there are some just incredible, you know, traditional rock songs on there. You have Corduroy on there. You have like Last Exit and Immortality. But then you have like Eddie Vedder strapping on an accordion and playing the song Bugs, you know, which is like this totally weird song that's really weirder than anything on In Utero, really, you know? Or you have, like, that sound collage at the end of the record, that Hey, Foxy Hole Mama song, which I don't think anyone in Pearl Jam has ever listened to from beginning to end. It's the revolution number nine. Exactly. Like, no one listens to that song. But I know I appreciate the fact that they did it as a gesture. (laughs) There's many different ways to be unlistenable. Yeah, exactly. And and, 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 In Utero is the safe way to be unlistenable. Well, it's not, I mean, it's transgressive in its own way, but I'm just, but, you know, Pearl Jam, I think, I do think that on some level, they were responding to that criticism. Yeah. When they make a record like that to say, okay, you know, yeah, we've made, 10 and we made verses and these are sort of like the biggest rock records of their era and there's a lot of really catchy radio songs on these albums but now that we're really successful we're going to take a left turn and we're going to make really we're going to mix in these sort of crazy ideas that we have experimental ideas and we're going to mix it in with sort of our standard formula and then they make a record like no code which is like sort of really anti-commercial and at that point too they've stopped making music videos they weren't even like touring all that much because they were fighting Ticketmaster, you know, which is sort of an anti-corporate crusade that they went on. That again, if you want to compare Nirvana and Pearl Jam in terms of sort of fighting the man, Nirvana never waged a war like that. You know, they never fought the music business in the same way that Pearl Jam did, like in a very overt way in the mid '90s. They wore T-shirts on cover yeah, they, Rolling Stone. Yeah, they said, yeah, like, yeah, you know. 
with all due respect to Kurt Cobain, yeah, he wore the shirt that said corporate magazines still suck on the cover of Rolling Stone, but he still, you know. He's on the cover. <laughs> he had his cake and ate it too, you know. I mean, he, he was able to work it both ways there. So, I mean, to me, when I look at these two bands, I think ultimately like what you're talking about is the idea of, and this is such a cliche thing to say again, but like the idea of burning out versus fading away, which is like sort of the oldest rock cliche that there is. And it's a line, I believe, in, in Kurt's uh, suicide note, is it well, not? Well, he quotes the Neil Young song, Hey, Hey, My, My, which is like, Neil Young kind of articulated that idea in that song. It's better to burn out than to fade away. But I feel like that idea already kind of existed in the ether of rock and roll before that, you know, probably starting in the early 70s when you had Jim Morrison and Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin pass away at the age of 27. You know, the idea that in rock and roll, is it better to like basically extinguish your flame when you're at your peak or is it admirable to try to find a way to navigate your way through your art and into middle age? And, and survive. And survive. And Nirvana and Pearl Jam is such a great metaphor for that because I think... To get back to what you were saying at the beginning of the episode, I think now when we think about Nirvana, you know, they've crossed over, I think, to other generations more than Pearl Jam has. I think like millennials and Generation Z and like, you know, probably teenagers now are much more likely to get into Nirvana than they are like to to gravitate to Kurt Cobain as an icon than they are to like Pearl Jam and Eddie Vedder. I mean, because it sounds like that's kind of the case for you, right? Like kind of coming up. After I mean, the they fact. never they never diminished, you know. I mean, it's the kind of thing where it's like, you know, you, Kurt Cobain is always going to be twenty seven, but like Eddie Vedder might be forty or he might be fifty. Like you, like, and the sample size was smaller too. I mean, you yeah. would say you know everything Nirvana did was at their peak for them, you know, for all intents and purposes. Right. Whereas Pearl Jam, it kind of got a little muddy. Oh, these are good, but then, and they they they, they lived like a real life. They, yeah, exactly. And, I mean, they, they were real people, which is I mean, now that I'm older, something that I appreciate a lot more about them too. And then, right. you know, digging deeper into discography, but yeah, no, at that time it was it, it was a different sort of rock canon. You know, one thing that we didn't talk about, too, like, have you heard that story about when Pearl Jam played a show the day that Kurt Cobain, the, the day his body was found? Have you heard that story? Yes, yes, the famous, the uh, Elevation the speech. The Elevation speech, yeah, because, you know, they were playing a show in Fairfax, Virginia that night, and Kurt's body was found, I forget what time that was, I don't know if it was like in the morning or like the afternoon, but like they knew about it before they went on stage. And like Eddie Vedder later did an interview with the LA Times where he talked about how he just like trashed his hotel room like immediately, which is like kind of like a melodramatic response to that kind of news. But like, again, I feel like it was like a genuine thing, you know, like he's just trashing his room. He said, then I just kind of sat in the rubble, which somehow felt right. It felt like my world at the moment. And it's interesting because like you can hear bootlegs of that show, and it's not like it's like it's not like they trashed the stage on the show. It's it's not even a show that you really would know necessarily that like something was amiss when you listen to it. It sounds like a pretty kind of standard Pearl Jam show, but then Eddie does give the elevation speech towards the end of the show, or kind of like in the middle of the show, and he says, "Quote: There's a lot of space between us tonight." We're not only kind of far, you know, we're kind of elevated. I notice a little more than usual. Either that or I've gotten taller. 
But I don't think it's very good to elevate yourself. That can be dangerous. Sometimes whether you like it or not, people elevate you, you know, whether you like it or not. It's real easy to fall, but I don't think any of us would be in this room tonight if it weren't for Kurt Cobain. So sort of like a, a warning against fame in that, you know, which was a very kind of very Eddie Vedder in 94 type lesson uh, to take from that whole thing. But yeah, I don't know, kind of like what you were saying before, that idea of um, kind of appreciating Pearl Jam as you get older more. I, th- I think that's really true, you know, because the idea of being a, like a middle-aged rocker isn't very appealing when you're a kid, but like, you're, and you're more inclined to gravitate to Nirvana. But now I feel like I'm gravitating more to Pearl Jam, maybe in some ways, for that reason. Yeah, I mean, there is sort of more of an authenticity there. You feel just, just you know, as you not only just getting older, but just seeing... Yeah, no, I agree with with that. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. We've hit some of these points already, but like, if, if you're going to make like the pro Nirvana argument, like over Pearl Jam, like what would like what would be the argument there? You think? I think you can't argue against 
them being the one who brought grunge to mainstream, brought the underground above ground, really. I mean, from a not only musical standpoint, but fashion. And it just, if you talk about the 90s, you have to talk about Nirvana and Nevermind. I don't think you necessarily have to talk about Pearl Jam. I know they're obviously a wonderful band, but I think that Nervana influenced culture in a way that was a lot more broad than, uh, than Pearl Jam ever did. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, your point about the 90s, is certainly, that overstating? Is well, it? no, in certainly terms of like 90s music, you'd have to talk about Pearl Jam, but I do think you're right in that if you're going to talk about like 90s overall, like the overall sort of cultural arc or like what happened in that decade, that if you're going to talk about a rock band, it would be Nirvana. Like they would be the one band that you would talk about in the same way that if you're going to talk about the 60s, you talk about Bob Dylan. You know, even though there's other great, wonderful singer-songwriters from that period, Bob Dylan had the significance that went beyond just music. And that's certainly true of Nirvana. Sociocultural. Sociocultural, just kind of influencing people. uh, You know, like people liked Bob Dylan not just because he made cool records, but they feel like he sort of signified something or signified a culture. And and the same was true of Nirvana. And, you know, and I I went on this spiel earlier in the episode, but it's absolutely true that like Nirvana was a transformative band. And they were a band that like opened the door to like lots of other kinds of music, other kinds of film, because of the way the media was at that time. A lot of people lived in parts of the country where there weren't independent record stores, where you had no sort of entree into alternative culture. So for a band like Nirvana to get on MTV and then to also make it possible for like bands like the Butthole Surfers to have hit singles, you know, which happened in the 90s, uh, or the Meat Puppets, oh, you the know. Meat Puppets, the Melvins. Um, Vaseline's Dinosaur Jr. Yeah, it just opened the door to all this stuff and it made it accessible to people that would have no access to it before that. And that was, again, truly transformative in that decade. So, you know, that sort of cultural importance, you you can't really ascribe to any other band. In terms of the pro-Pearl Jam argument, I would argue that what they've done in their career is arguably harder in the long run than like what Nirvana did, which is, they found a way to survive the things that killed Nirvana. You know, they went through a period in the mid 90s where, and this has been well documented, like in that documentary, Pearl Jam 20, as well as Pearl Jam books. And it's kind of part of the mythology of the band now. But around the time of like, you know, Vitology and No Code, that band came very close to imploding. And Eddie Vedder himself was not really sure. I don't think he. My impression is that he wasn't necessarily suicidal. I've never heard that, but that he was very ambivalent about where Pearl Jam was at that at that moment. And you look at their peers, you know, not just Nirvana, but Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, like a lot of those big 90s alternative grunge bands, they all fell apart by the end of the 90s. And many of those people also ended up passing away in tragic circumstances. And Pearl Jam is really unique in that they didn't, you know, they, they kept it together and they were able to find a way to fade away in a graceful way. Like, it's kind of hard to say that they faded away when they're still a band that they're really one of the only rock bands that can play stadiums at this point in their career. And certainly, you know, they played stadiums, they play arenas, they play huge festivals, they don't have the same kind of pop significance that they had. I think Last Kiss, that song you mentioned, was like their last sort of chart hit, and that was like in 99 or so, I think. But they found a way to kind of conduct themselves 
in a way that's dignified. You know, which you would not. That's not a word that you would apply to many arena rock bands. That it's like fifty-year-old rock star. He's not embarrassing himself. He's not trying to be anything other than what he is. Exactly. And, they're not. You know. Yeah. You know, they're not doing the U2 thing where they're still trying to be a pop band, you know, or trying to reinvent themselves and like, you know, to court relevance. They're like, no, we're Pearl Jam. We do what we do. You either like it or you don't. And there's a point that you had made where it seemed like Eddie was somebody who who sort of looked forward to getting middle-aged and older. Well, that's the thing that's so striking about Eddie Vedder because at the peak of his fame in in the 90s, like when, you know, Shannon Doherty like wanted to go out with Eddie Vedder and like all these people wanted to like be with him. He didn't seem all that happy, but now that he's in his 50s, he seems to have aged into the rock star that he always wanted to be, you know, because like when he was in his 20s and early 30s, he gravitated to like Neil Young and like Mike Watt and Pete Townsend, like these, you know, lifer musicians who had been around the block many times. And you always got the sense from him that he wished that he could have more miles on the tires, you know. Elder he, statesman status. Yeah, that he could be what that he could kind of almost, you know, that he could have been like a blues singer or something. You know what I mean? Like kind of like like a lot of the young blues singers, like they want to be older so they have that kind of weathered quality to their voice or that they have the gravitas of like an older musician. And you always feel like Eddie Vedder yearned for that as a younger man. And now he has it. You know, now he is like the Pete Townsend for like younger musicians that would still kind of look up to bands in that classic rock lineage. And it's really inspiring. You know, I'm really glad that, you know, as much as I love Kurt Cobain and Nirvana, you know, it's really nice to have the counter example of someone who was able to weather that storm, you know, that, that, that's tumultuous storm of your twenties and, and pull through, you know? Um, and that is inspiring, you know, for all of us as we get older, you know, I think we all aspire to the kind of life, you know, like where you can get older and, and still be happy, you know, as you get in the middle age and beyond. So that seems to be how they fit together. Ultimately, Pearl Jam and Nirvana, you know, it's kind of like two sides of the same coin in a way. Well, here's the classic hypothetical. What do you think, uh, Kurt would have been like, had he lived, what do you think the, uh, Nirvana trajectory would have been and what their relationship would have been? I think Nirvana would have probably broken up. Yeah pretty i think if they had stayed together i think they would have broken up because i think it just seemed like things weren't very good in that band and that i think kurt cobain probably would have wanted to do his own thing you feel like dave Grohl eventually would have wanted to launch a side project you know foo fighters are i mean it's interesting to think about like whether like those early foo fighter songs would have ended up on nirvana records you know like if this is a call would have been wow, the Dave yeah. Grohl track. Like the, like he would have been like George Harrison getting like two songs on a Nirvana record. And like, this is a call and alone and easy target or something end up on the next Nirvana record. Or if Kurt Cobain would have just said, screw that noise. I write the songs in Nirvana. You can do a side project because I mean, Dave Grohl, I can't imagine that he just would have been the drummer in a band. No. Like, yeah forever so i think they probably would have broken up i think kirk Cobain would have probably done his own thing and i just wonder if he would have like just been sort of like an esoteric solo artist more than like a guy that courted mainstream acceptance maybe he would have been like maybe he would have made records that sounded like sonic youth like they're more kind of arty records that they made in the late 90s and early 2000s i wish i could have found out i wish we could have heard those records that would have been amazing to 
have heard Kurt Cobain as an older man and to see how he would have progressed. But I think Nirvana would have been finished either way. I really do. But who knows? One of the mysteries of history right there. I think on that note, I'm going to start crying here talking about my grunge rock youth. But I hope you I hope you enjoyed this journey into the 90s, Jordan. Oh, I, I absolutely loved it. Thank you, you so you much learned for opening. Something? I learned I learned a lot. <laughs> and we had a good time. We did have a good time. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, hey, thanks to everyone for listening. We'll be back again next week with more Rivals. Take care. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how three 20-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.